Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I teach philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I specialize in continental European philosophy, existentialism, and things like that. Hi, I'm Eric Kaplan, uh, and I'm a philosopher. Uh, I'm also a writer, uh, currently on strike. Okay, and this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, which is a podcast in which we confront unsettling and disturbing and hopefully deep questions and think them through and talk about them and see if we can reach a place of equanimity, courage, and insight. And Yeah, what, we do. Yeah, and we often do, I think. Uh, what is our terrifying question, Eric? Our terrifying question is, can people change? Um, and... Uh, we're fortunate to be joined by uh, uh, two philosophers and, and thinkers and professors, uh, Kim Garchar and Melissa Shu. Um, Kim Garchar is an associate professor of philosophy at Kent State and an avid feminist. And Melissa Shu is director of teaching excellence at Marquette University and affiliate faculty in philosophy. And they are the editors of Philosophy for Girls, an invitation to the life of thought. And Melissa Shu also gave a TEDx talk on women and intellectual empowerment. So welcome to Terrifying Questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for being here. Um, and um, uh, so the question, can people change? It's it's a really important one. Uh, and I think it's terrifying. I guess it's terrifying if the, uh, my first thought was it's terrifying because um, to the extent people do things that suck, if they can't change, then that's bad news, right? Right, exactly, exactly. Right. I guess some people might be afraid from a kind of, um, maybe you could change people into something that sucks even worse. That might be a wor another worry. Um, but we'll see which way we go. But I, I suppose to me, the, the, the frightening thing about this question is that the answer could be no. And uh, everything that you see that people do that is short-sighted and avaricious and cruel and exploitative and misogynistic and violent, that's what you got because of some, whatever, Olduvai Gorge. The people have genes from Olduvai Gorge and we're going to behave like Australopithecus afarensis and nothing can be done about it. So that would be the reason why I think that this is a terrifying question. What do the three of you think? I'll let you take a swipe at this, either of you. So I find it terrifying for similar reasons. We have the ethical issue, which is if you are kind of a crap human, is there any chance for you mm -hmm. to get better? And right. there's lots embedded in that. I also find it terrifying for some maybe metaphysical or quasi-metaphysical reasons as well. That is, right. what is the nature of change in the first place? If I have a potential in me, does it mean that I can actualize that? What would it mm -hmm. take for that to have happen? So, and, and how much of this is up to me or how much of this is up to other people? So when oh. I talk with students, I think it's really interesting that a lot of them see that so little in their life can in fact be changed. They feel like they are kind of put into this box already and there's not a lot of hope for them or there's not a lot of say that they get to have. And so sometimes I find myself coming at it from a very, you can, you know, very existentialist spirit. It's up to you to kind of seize the day and take your life and so on. And then the other part of that is, you know, is that really kind of the case? Do we have that kind of freewheeling ethos or the metaphysics underpinning it? I, I think I remember it attributed to Henry Ford, that'll be my weasel wording because I'm not sure if it's true, attributed to Henry Ford that there are two kinds of people. There are people who think they can change and people who think they cannot change, and they're both right. 
In other words, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you think you cannot change, you'll, you won't do the, take the steps necessary to change and you won't. Um, so I will say like, I'm mostly interested in the ethical question, um, but I don't think we can talk about ethics without talking about the metaphysics. And I think that one of the scary things for me is that I don't think we get to change independently. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. think we get to just make the decision in that sort of existentialist way to set a new course. And then what does that mean in our actual capacity to change if we require others to make those changes? Well, let, let me let me ask this question. There, there are these these um, Silicon Valley billionaires who are starting to start their own city. Um, and I think Plato and Plotinus at various points talked about that. Um, if you... If you had like serious financial backing and a hundred babies and no laws, what do you think you could change them into? That is, uh, let's see, Melissa, you want to take that one? Go ahead. I have something else to say in a minute. <laughs> uh, so I guess the first thing would be that if, I had unlimited funds, I would attempt to change them into creatures that understood their position in a web of relations to other humans and other animals and the environment. And I think that's largely a piece of education. Um, but that also requires, I think, changing their understanding of things like capitalism and that's an entirely different question. So uh, the unlimited funding part is an interesting twist on that, but I'll let you- But if you had those 18 babies, no, I, not 18 babies, you had those 100 babies yeah. and unlimited money and you got to set the curriculum, do you think you could release them into our society in like 18 years and they would be more altruistic than just people who are raised in our capitalist hellscape right now? I do. You do. do. Okay. Yeah. So that's, so you think you could change people, like how good could they be? Well, that, that isn't strictly up to me, which is part of the problem, but um, mm -hmm. I do think learning about alternatives to capitalism is a good place to start. Capitalism is one of those hyper ideals, right? That it's so big, we have a hard time thinking outside of it. And if you had a hundred right. babies that you could say from the beginning, here's different ways to think about the world and here's different ways to think about how we live and here's different ways to think about our obligations to each other. I do think that on average out of those 100, you would see increased empathy. Now, does that mean uh -huh. every student comes out of that completely empathetic? Absolutely not. And that is the tricky part, right? Because it's both the individual and the community slash education. But you could shift, you feel you could shift the bell curve away from sociopathy. I okay, do. cool. You know, I think it's interesting that the ethical and the metaphysical issues are very closely entwined. They're really two sides of a coin. There was some studies recently that were showing that people's intuitions about personal identity are very cued to um, the person you know, if their moral beliefs, their moral values change radically, that's when people are most likely to say this is a different person, it's not the same person. Mm -hmm. So there's certain kinds of changes that I think could be very unsettling um, that might even make you 
leap to a sort of philosophical, or I mean, a metaphysical sort of conclusion right. that um, I'm not even sure it's the same person I'm dealing with. I mean, people can undergo lots of changes, and you'll still think it's the same person. Mm-hmm. That's a metaphysical kind of continuity, but it seems like it's geared into things that are ethical or morally important. I I happen to think that, of course, the answer to the question, I mean, depending on how you hear the question, if it's can they change at all, sure. Probably the the answer is unlikely to be no. They can't change at all. Uh, can they change at will? No, as you say, it's not likely that people can just change willy nilly any old way they want. Um, and it's nice to think that people can change for the better and improve and so on. That would be depressing to think that all those efforts are futile. But I think there would be something very unsettling about the idea that people could be so malleable or so changeable that. Their, so many of their values and views of the world could change so much that you would no longer feel like you were dealing with the same person. I think that would be terrifying if people yeah. were that changeable. And let me just add one more intuition to this, which I think it's very interesting about us, that if you had a friend from childhood, you know, whatever age, 12, 14, or whatever, um, and then you didn't see each other for maybe 40 or 50 years, and you meet them again at a reunion or something, you can have this experience of like, oh, yeah, you're the same. And people often do say, you haven't changed a bit, even mm-hmm. if that's hyperbolic. It's nice that they haven't changed. It's still mm-hmm. the same. Wouldn't it be unsettling if, if you lose contact with a person for a few years later on? It's like they're, they're, they've changed so much that you can't even recognize the same person. I think that would be a different kind of nightmare, personally. And to that end, sometimes you find people in close relation to each other, and they grow apart. And you say, I don't even yeah. recognize you anymore, or I don't yeah. even know you anymore. Mm-hmm. I think, too, about how maybe you go see a movie and it reminds you of your best friend. You'd say you'd love this movie because there's something that you recognize as identifiable in that movie with that person. And their identity means that you can anticipate they would like that. You know, when you know the person, you know what they would like. You know what they wouldn't like. You can imagine what they would say. And you recognize that when you see them again. That's a wonderful thing that people aren't that changeable. And and if I could super quick about the people who aren't changeable at all. I always think about how sometimes those people help us understand the culture or climate of something as well, like Socrates, who just seemed to be monstrously who he was for his entire life, birth to death, so Mm. far as we can tell, or like Antigone, who in that Mm. play, you know, she goes ahead and buries her brother, which is against the law, and she couldn't even consider not burying her brother as an option because she's just so who she is no matter what. And one of the yeah. challenges, I think, is especially in literature and plays, when we don't see someone undergo that kind of recognition or a reversal of fortune, or we don't see someone kind of change in that way, we feel like it's almost not human nature for them to be as yeah. they are. And so I think sometimes considering those examples can be powerful, too. Yeah. I also think it's the the two go together, right? The terrifying aspect that some people can be changed for the worse and not with their permission um, has to go hand in hand with the hope that we have that people can be changed for the better. And that to me is terrifying because there is no guarantee. And we have examples of people who have changed beyond recognition or changed through no, you know, through a set of tragedy that they did not, you know, sign up for. So. Right. Uh, what is that Yates line? Um, a young man who had a sound fly fisher's wrist changed to a drunken journalist. Mm. You know, <laughs> there there is a sense that like um, 
like like the arc of human life is towards moral compromise and decrepitude. Um, but what's the strongest argument that people can't change? And, and I suppose I'm tempted to say the strongest argument is something from uh, biology that, um, you know, there's there's physical limitations on people. Nobody is going to uh, like like um, uh, termites can eat wood, but we can't. Um, and, uh, you know, birds can fly and we can't. And then if you look at our emotions, um, most people statistically can have stuff stolen from them and not feel mad. Uh, most people, if there's a competition about who's going to get, you know, an apple, will kind of want two apples, even if their neighbor has one apple. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, a tendency to revenge and a tendency to acquisitiveness. Mm -hmm. I, I'm not saying I agree with that, but but I, I would like us to engage with that argument because I do think it's it's persuasive to people. I think a big mistake that people often make is thinking that if something is biologically determined or innate, it's therefore immutable. Mm -hmm. And that uh -huh. actually yeah. doesn't follow. There's all kinds of mm -hmm. instincts we've inherited. Like, I mean, you know, the nocturnal, you sleep at night and you're up in the daytime. And that's true about us. And at some basic level, that's not going to change much. But look of how flexible it turned out to be. Mm -hmm. That with mm -hmm. artificial light, mm -hmm. we can be up all night. And apparently mm -hmm. people never fully adjust to a fully nocturnal schedule. So I've heard if you're surrounded by artificial light and you mm -hmm. never quite manage it. But you can stretch it way beyond. And impulses to revenge, for example, those are very very primal and instinctive. But man, the civilizing effect can be really dramatic that you don't have people just killing each other over little right. things. You've got a legal system that manages to adjudicate this. So biological and innate, hardwired, doesn't mean inflexible. That's one thing to keep in mind, I think. Well, but it could mean that it's more expensive to swim against the river. Yeah. Right. Uh, like, like it could be that you're always going to have to deal with the, what they call the old Adam. You're always going to have to deal with a tendency towards revenge. And if you pretend it doesn't exist at all, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Yeah. In the same sense that like, yeah, maybe you could get those bacteria that the termites live in a commensal relationship with, and you could breed them and you could put them in people's stomachs and you might be able to get some people to live off of wood, <laughs> but it'll be a really inefficient, hard It'll be a hard sell in terms of social engineering. People won't like it. They won't do as well. So, so like, like the the I'll call this person the sociobiological conservative. The sociobiological conservative could argue that it's not impossible, but it's just always going to be sufficiently harder that um, that people on the whole can't change that much or that easily. Right. Not that it's impossible, but but like if you try and say. Everybody, like, like, uh, what was it? Thomas Edison said, I'm going to sleep 10 minutes every hour. Like, don't, don't try that at home, kids. He was a weirdo. You're not going to be able to have a, a society where everyone can do, do that. It's not going to work out. Yeah. If you try and make your employees or your students do that, they will eventually revolt. Um, so that would be the, the, the soft sociobiological conservative response. What do you think of that? Well, I think to take the different systems we have in place to kind of manage these things, I think this is the better parts of our criminal and legal systems actually grapple with those kind of, 
either predetermined or what seem to be determinant factors in terms of traumatic mm-hmm. injuries, what's happened to people, and and use those as some causal explanations for why people do the things they do. And I actually think in a really good way, there's a lot of good to that. There's a huge benefit. Um, and so I, I think about how our systems try to adapt to some of those more fixed, not totally fixed, as you were saying, not immutable, right? But more fixed things that happen in a way that we say, look, sometimes a person can be affected so very much that they don't have the capabilities that they might otherwise have. But in some of these other cases that are being talked about here, it seems to me that, you know, if we're going to this society with 100 people, for example, what would we do? We might become more empathetic. We might work toward that, but we also might try to work on better reasoning, for example, Mm -hmm. and being more creative in terms of problem solving, because that seems to be an emergent theme as well. If we're going to say that, you know, it's the nature of human life to change, that doesn't even necessarily need to be according to the kind of nature that we've always understood ourselves to be. There are ways to kind of think beyond that as well, to think about even adapting what it is to be human in some, in some at least materialist, biological, physicalist ways. What do you mean adapting what it is to be human in some materialist, physicalist, biological ways? What does that mean? So I always think about an article I read um, called Dr. Daedalus, the mad scientist who wants to give us wings. And it's this guy who's doing amazing work. And what he's doing that's actually amazing is his primary gig is on reconstructive surgery for soldiers who have been injured in battle. And so what Mm -hmm. he does is he's able to kind of augment... um, he's able to augment different attributes and senses of people. So for example, people can have supersonic hearing. If say their cochlear has been damaged so much, he can actually make it better than it was before and kind of change those things. He also invented what seems to be, and this is very Icarus flying close to the sun, but what seems to be at some point a plausible way to give wings to humans. And this where does he attach them? To the what's that called the scapula the scapula yeah, the scapula and you can flap them by by just flapping them you don't need to press a button or anything uh yeah so the idea is that it gets grafted on big disclaimer i am not someone who has a lot of knowledge of how these things work but yeah it gets grafted on and becomes part of the bone and muscle structure but what's right. keeping us he says from thinking in those ways is of course the way that we tend to think about being human which is not that And that, of course, calls to mind Thomas Nagel's essay, What's It Like to Be a Bat? And his answer to that question is, we don't know because we don't inhabit a kind of worldview and epistemological sphere that a bat does. So even if we think about, for example, having wings, we're thinking about having them attached to our shoulders. But in that case, our shoulders wouldn't even really be our shoulders, our scalpulas wouldn't be our scalpulas, and the whole thing would be different. And I'm going to be out over my depth there, but since you asked, that's the sort of thing I'm thinking about. You know, so when we're thinking about mm. kind of the potential of human life and human nature, it might look a little different than people could thought. have wings. Yeah. 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 But would we then be humans with wings as opposed to something other than human? And I guess, I mean, one of the things I talk about with students a lot is that I do think um, that there are two things that ex- that describe the human condition one is that we're fallible, one is that we're finite. And if we ever became infinite or perfect, right, or immortal, at least, let's just say immortal, that I do think means that we're something other than human. 
right? That these two things describe what it means to be human. But this goes to Melissa's point about like, well, if you were this being with wings, are is the experience so very different that you're really no longer human, right? Now you're a Well, if you had a bat. choice of being immortal and not human and mortal and human, which would you pick? Mortal and human. Can, Why? Can I take a long mortality in human? That's that would be want. good. Well, you were the one who said you were the one who said that if you that's the choice. You said if you're immortal, you're not human. And then yeah. I would sort of be like, well, so much the worse for being human. Bye. Well, be careful what you wish for, Eric. Okay. I mean, uh, because but also uh, be careful not, what you fail to wish for. Right. Okay, but there's lots of ways to not be human. I mean. Um, you're going to be okay with being an immortal cockroach or an immortal um No, no, I'm saying if contact. I can if I can <laughs> be kind of like I am now well, but not have to die, uh, I think I would dig it. Yeah, kind of like you are now. That sounds like you want your cake and you want to eat it too because you want to be kind of human. Um Well, what would I lose? What if I was like, you know, I had my pants and my shirt and <laughs> you know, uh you know, my podcast, but I just didn't have a, an expiration date, what would I lose? This maybe gets us a little off topic, but I have been thinking about this a lot recently. Here's what I think um, uh, about, you know, mortal or immortal. I'll just say it quickly because I don't want to get us hung up on this. Mm -hmm. I I agree with, um, with what you were saying, Kim, because uh, the problem with imagining immortality is I don't think we even know how to imagine it. Mm -hmm. So when I think of like, okay, we're not just talking about 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 10,000 years. We're talking about forever. Now, are all my friends immortal too? Because if not, I'm going to have generations and generations of friends dying. And, and That's what is that lose. what I want? That's what I thought was the poignant thing about Barney the dinosaur. Mm. Because he has all these young friends. Yeah. But he's millions of years old right. in Barney canon. Yeah. Yeah. So he's seen so <laughs> many children die. That's like the, um, that's like the is... children's version of the Macropolis case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then... But then I think, that's like, it, if that's not enough for you, you know, eventually the sun is going to go supernova and swallow up the earth. You want to keep living after that? You want to keep living? I mean, I just don't, I think we don't know what we're talking about when we imagine no limitation to the span of a life. Just like mm. you said, I want a longer I worry life. I sour grapes. But, yeah. Anytime people say they're okay with death, I worry it's sour grapes. It's kind of like, you better be. <laughs> I think it's like wanting to be immortal is like wanting to be infinitely tall. I don't yeah. think it makes any sense. Oh, infinitely I mean, tall. That'd be yeah. hard. But if you're but, immortal yeah. in that way, I mean, you're not even alive. If you can't, I mean, death is contained within the idea of life. I mean, a rock doesn't die because it's not right. alive, right? We'd have to specify whether you could sort of opt out anytime you want. If like immortal that's is important. like Dracula where you can't even die, then you're trapped. That's and that's... Yeah. Did you did you did anyone read the book The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by chance? So this is actually the premise is that a huh. girl, a teenager, um, in I believe 17th century France, um, she wants to escape her really crappy life that's ahead of her. So she goes out into the woods and she pleads to any god who will listen. And so, of course, an old ancient god listens to her and uh -huh. says, I am going to grant you your wish. I will let you escape from this version of your life. You will be immortal, but no one will remember your name. No uh -huh. one will know who you are. And so that's the plot then. And then he says, and when you get done with that, and when you're ready to tap out, I'll take your soul. 
And so then it goes through a couple hundred years of her, you know, living this life in this way that we're kind of talking about and living fully and having lots of romantic relationships and friendships, but but they can never last from one day to the next. She just has all the experiences without without anyone kind of reciprocating those feelings to her. And it does make me think that once you have your quadrillionth romantic relationship <laughs> maybe enough is enough you get a little jaded <laughs> yeah. spoiler like, alert like, she does i think oh, it would happen a, a long time like, before like quadrillion once you've yeah, had once yeah. you've had a quadrillion <laughs> romances at some point you're going to start to see certain patterns in them and it won't be as zesty i think for you. 473 is going to be more like yeah, yeah, your body it. count Maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I think maybe even 150 would be. I think I mean, the, that's interesting. Can I ask about the wings? I'm more thing? of a romantic. The the wings thing that's not non that's that's nonfiction. Correct. I mean, he actually, and he's this is somebody who does legitimate medical work, Correct. so he's and he's fact, not crazy. That's right. I first read about it in I think the Atlantic like 15 years ago, and I kept using it in my Phil 101 class. Interesting. Kind of I have to look this up. That. But then I looked him up again recently to see kind of what he was doing now. I'll send you. When you say you looked him up, you mean you went up and he was he, he was, was floating above, like Icarus about to crash into the ocean. <laughs> I was like, bye, dude. Yeah. But now apparently there's not too many people signing up for this kind of wing surgery, um, or are there? I mean, he this is all still completely hypothetical, and he says he has it figured out as to how this can, in fact, he work. thinks he knows how he can do yes. it. He thinks yes. he knows how he and can do it. He's already contacted by the Department of Defense to work on supersonic hearing and a whole bunch of other stuff. Supersonic right. hearing, I can get. Yeah, yeah the wing yeah. sounds yeah. completely nutty. So he says, yeah. he says, let's let's take a little break. This is an interesting topic, but yeah, let's, let's take a break yep. for our sponsors um, and we'll come back and discuss this. Very good. Okay, that was a good break. Uh, we're here with... Uh, uh, Kim Garchar and uh, Melissa Shu, uh, and we're discussing can people change? And and what we got into was perhaps perhaps possibly people can can learn to fly. <laughs> I'm I'm is really it, queasy. Is there any... I'm made very yeah, queasy by these um, kind of fantasies of radical transformation. So if you a minute ago, Eric, you were sort of posing the sociobiological conservative is that what you called the, yeah, the position yeah. i'm not a fan of sociobiology but i do fit that description of what you described as a sociobiological conservative a lot of what's innate hardwired is flexible malleable changeable mm-hmm. but the idea of changing things very much beyond what we recognize as human i think is a recipe for a disaster i don't have a good argument for this it's just a very strong gut instinct and even your thought experiment gives me kind of the creeps to be honest, about yeah. the 100 babies and uh, unlimited funds. And yeah. I think these experiments are already so at odds with ordinary, normal upbringing and nurturing and education that uh, I, I don't even like thinking about them hypothetically, to be honest, because um, the, uh, we know so little, you know, even though we live in these practices and institutions that are probably, you know, hundreds yeah. of thousands of years old. But, and but, um, so I, 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 like I say, the wings thing gives me the creeps. Well, and, what was um, the what was yeah. the Su- ancient Sumerian equivalent of a podcast? Do you think? <laughs> uh, cave cast. Um, like, like if we're if we're the the local scribes in in ancient uh, Sumer, and we're having a, a confab about what humans can be like. Mm-hmm. 
aren't we going to get it radically wrong? I Won't see. we be, we be <laughs> yeah. like, well, of course there will sure. need to be a cast of priest kings sacrificing to Marduk every morning, <laughs> but that's not true. There didn't need, did not need to be a cast of priest right. kings sacrificing to Marduk every morning. They were just wrong about that. Here, let me, <laughs> you know? and, and so many things, right? So I'm worried that we're going to, we're going to sell ourselves short that whatever, and, and I am sure they would feel the same kind of like, and you'll be like, well, there won't be any, but he's sacrificing to Marduk. And they'd be like, well, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> <laughs> That's creeping me out, man. I bet they're um, going to be wrong about more of the stuff they think up as possible possibilities that aren't possibilities than they are going to yeah. be wrong about things they can change that are already established. I mean, I, but be, I, think, I they think they didn't think really anything could change. <laughs> or, or like, we <laughs> were talking about ancient Egypt a couple of weeks ago. They didn't seem to think much could change. You'd be like, you yeah. know, people won't, won't wear the special hat for ISIS. <laughs> of course they will. What are you, crazy? <laughs> But we could even step it back from like wings, right? We can talk just mm -hmm. as a bioethicist talking about genetic manipulation. Um, oh, cool. And I think that there are inherent risks in that, that in so far as we cannot in any realistic way predict what some of these changes that we are capable of would result in, right? Um, so, what are you worried about? Uh, I am worried about... Uh, increased inequalities based on certain traits um that's my basic answer but you know like if we talk about curing particular illnesses that's great but when we start talking about enhancement right then we get into the world of science fiction but it's it's i think genetic manipulation is something we actually do need to be grappling with right now in a very real sense um beyond you well know, you you said earlier you wanted people to share more didn't you i thought you said you wanted people to cooperate more am uh, i putting I, words in your mouth i apologize yeah i said i would like them to be more aware of their position in webs of relations such that they better understood complexity and moral obligation yeah right so if somebody uh, now let me know let me know if i'm making a mistake here but if somebody identified a gene that makes people unable to understand their web of complex interrelationships that they just if you have this gene you're just statistically more likely to view yourself as a as a, a utility maximizing atom um and you could go to the doctor early in pregnancy and get a shot that would disable that selfishness gene what's wrong with making that available then everybody would be more aware of how they're part of a web of uh interrelationships which is what you want i think it depends on uh I'm going to, I'm going to, this is hedging. I understand this, but it, it depends That's on. That's a totally unfair debater's trick. So don't take it seriously. Um, <laughs> um, who Who's deciding on, on how, which webs are affected and how the change is affected. And that is a hedge. I understand, but I think it's very scary getting to the point where we can say safely Here's we can give you this shot and we know exactly what will happen when we give you the shot. And I guess that's what I'm trying yeah, to yeah. caution against. That right, getting yeah. to that point is 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 terrifying to me. And I think we should yeah. move slowly. It's the problem with the surgical strike, so called, as if surgery is a good example, because anybody who's been through very serious medical issues knows that as much of a science as medicine may be, the organism is so complex that you wiggle one thing and it has all kinds of ramifications. It's very hard to, to isolate causal relations, even in things we understand pretty well. So you're asking for trouble, That's uh, I imagine. That, 
I really know almost nothing about it, except I've got strong feelings about how unpredictable organisms are and the interventions in them, especially by artificial means. You have no idea. I mean, the organism has evolved in a very delicate way to be adapted to a natural environment over millions of years. And you start tinkering with things and you've got cancers and you know, uh, uh, syndromes, and it's it's not like a typewriter where you can switch out mm-hmm. a part and fix it. <laughs> Whole different system involved. Anyway, but, yeah. Did anyone see that movie from a long time ago starring Peter Lorre called M? Has anyone oh, yeah. seen that? Oh, no. yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it? I'm sorry? It's just called M, the letter M. And That's I- what made him famous, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's a, I mean, it's a brutal movie. But it's about a pedophile child molester murderer who um, takes kids. And it's actually, it's a brilliant, fascinating movie. But at the end, of course, everyone's after him. So you have the equivalent of the mafia after him because, of course, the police are disrupting the mafia activity because they're trying to catch this criminal who's terrorizing and so on. So they get him in this room and it's just this horrible scene of everyone's after him they finally actually catch him and they're kind of shaking him down and he says do you think I want to be like this I don't want to be like this I can't help myself I can't change and that's I Uh haven't watched it recently but that's kind of the the paraphrase there so what do you do and I think this is an absolutely terrifying question what do you do if even you want to change or you can see what's good, but you don't know how to do that or you don't feel like you can or you just can't? And I know, Kim, this is for you, I think, where those networks of relation come into play to help provide that kind of su- support in a way or some structures or systems. But that, I think, is a really terrifying question. What if you really, really want to change, but you don't have it within you? And I mean that kind of vaguely to be able to make those changes. And that's everything from, of course, addiction and trauma and so on down the road. But even in more modest ways, you know, I should have exercised today and I didn't because I was feeling a little complacent about that. Right. And, And so sometimes we can kind of want to change from these mild ways to extreme ways. And I don't know. I mean, I can in those ways because I'll do it again tomorrow and it's just a gap. But anyhow, I'm wondering some thoughts on that too. But isn't there a difference between like weakness of will, like acrasia, right? Like I didn't go to the gym today and I cannot stop myself from harming others. Well, yeah. It may be a a gradual difference or a difference of degree. Yeah. What if it's just a difference of topic? Like maybe maybe eating ice cream for us feels the same way as child murder does for Peter Lorre in that movie. Like he says, I shouldn't do it. But then, oh my goodness, there's another child. I kind of want to do it. And he does it. And then he's like, I promise I won't do it next time. I totally won't do it next time. And then once he's in the situation of being tempted, he succumbs to temptation. It could be that they're exactly the same. Well, they're, they're both in some way, on some level, in some interpretation of this word, satisfying, right? Uh-huh. Um, but with Peter Lorre's character, at least in this, it's, it's not that he says he won't do it next time. He says, I can't stop that. I'm incapable of changing. I'm just looking to be able to do it again, essentially. And so kind of... Right. Yeah. So do we think he wants to change or is he yeah. just bullshitting us? So no, he does he want, want to change. change for sure. Just can't do it. Ah. And then he wouldn't have the police and the mafia after him and sort of the whole world after mm-hmm. him. It would be probably a good deal to 
get out of that if he could. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I'm wondering. Or maybe he likes it so much. Too, even about like we do not have good treatment for sexual predators in general, right? It, that is an incredibly intractable sort of way of being in the world. And if we could mm -hmm. eliminate a particular character trait, wouldn't it be one of them at least be sexual predation? And yet we, we have failed thus far to be able to affect that kind of change. And we have failed to affect change when we deal with true sociopaths or psychopaths. I think that changes all the time. But I, I do, I think Melissa's question is a good one, right? Because I do think there are some people who recognize the pain that they're doing and yet cannot stop acting in ways that causes the pain. Is that fair? That's an anti-Socratic statement in a way, which is always a challenge for me. Part of my background's in ancient philosophy. But, you know, uh -huh. Socrates seems to have this idea that if you can see something and know that it is the good thing to do, it's just a matter of writing yourself right. and then doing right. that thing, ultimately. In fact, yeah. you'll have to, I think he yeah. thinks. I think there's yeah. no such thing as exactly. not doing it That's once right. you exactly. understand mm -hmm. what the good is. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Because the good is on the road to it, as a friend of mine likes mm -hmm. to say. So you're just yeah. lockstep in that way. Yep. But that seems hard to believe, doesn't it? I mean, there's so many examples of people like the Peter Laura character who very honestly and sincerely say, um, I know this is bad. And in fact, the ancient Greeks had an example in uh, Medea. I think is it Medea who's about to kill her children with Jason. And I think she says, uh, I know this is wrong or evil or bad or whatever, but she says, my anger is too great. And so even Euripides, it looks like, was on to, I think, uh, you know, this can't be right, but it's hard to see how it could be wrong. Why would you do something you know you shouldn't? If you know you shouldn't, it looks like... I, I, I think that at the moment, like taking the example of like eating ice cream late at night, because um, I've, never, I've never seriously been tempted to kill my children. Um, and I'm not bragging. It's, I mean, a lot of it has to do with that. They're no. both pretty nice. Well, give um, yourself some credit, Eric. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. I don't mean to, I don't mean to, what do they call it? Uh, virtue signal. Yeah. I don't yeah. mean to virtue signal. Um, so, so I've, I've yet so far, I've never really been tempted to murder my children. So I'm not like Medea, but I have yeah. been tempted to eat ice cream at late at night. And I'm also, yeah. I've done it. Um, and I think the way I would describe it is at the moment I'm doing it, I think it's better. I'm like, uh -huh. yeah, it would be good to live longer, but who the hell knows if I will live longer and tomorrow is another day and the ice cream, I know it tastes really good and I'm going to do it. Like I feel at the moment um, I'm, I'm Soc Socrates is correct about me. I think that's a good, that I think that's an example. What I think is good. Yeah. And I think the other stuff really doesn't seem that good to me at the moment. That's <laughs> like, an example that's very friendly to Socrates. But, you know, the gambling addict, and Dostoevsky himself was a gambling addict. I think he wrote about this from personal experience. I think the experience there is you're rolling the dice and you are hating it. You hate well, yourself here, for doing I, this. I, I have a different explanation of the gambling addict. Is that you think you're going to win. At the moment, you're putting your money on... You Red. don't have to think that. You no. think you're going to win. You don't think you're going to lose. And you could say, I know there's an argument that I won't win, uh -huh. but I got a pretty good feeling right now. It's, it's, <laughs> right. it's bordering you between a right? belief and just really strong wishful thinking. 
and desperately wishing to wanting to win. But let me just add that mm-hmm. there are mice that they get addicted to. I, I'm now I'm reporting this third, fourth hand, or whatever. So anybody who knows the scientific literature can help me out on this. But you give the mice that they hit a little button to get the sort of stuff they like, and it gets them addicted to it. And then the taste that attracted them to it first, they start subtracting that, so it no longer tastes good. It starts tasting bad to them, but they're addicted to the thing, mm-hmm. and they keep hitting the bar. But you can tell the way they're 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 not liking it. So even past the point of enjoying the thing, they're getting no positive feedback from it, but the addiction is still fueling the behavior. Now, I know but maybe these are the mice. anxiety of not doing the thing they're addicted to is so unpleasant that they do it anyway. Yeah. Um, they're probably thinking like Peter Laurie, like, ah, I wish I could get out of this. Wish I wish I could get out I of hate this. this. Yeah. <laughs> um, sometimes, who knows? Do- I mean- I sometimes wonder with the dog that's chasing the ball. Does it really want the ball, or is it just locked into an addictive behavior? Dogs seem pretty happy with must it. Chase the, ball. the problem yeah, with these animal examples, like... yeah, <laughs> the animal examples. Animals are so unreflective; it's hard to know what they're thinking about any of this. Yeah, Human yeah. beings are pretty complicated. Are we getting close to a second break time? I think we I think so. might be. We'll Let's come take back a second and we'll break talk and about... gather our thoughts. And... Here's one. Yeah, yeah, here's one thing I think we could gather our thoughts for is this sort of question. Um, if we could change ourselves out of the kind of beings that are compulsively acratic, would we and should we? Ah. That might be a possible way to bring this together. Okay, so let's take a little break. Okay, well, we took a little break, um, and and we're here. We're asking the question: Can people change? And we're with uh, uh, Kim uh, Garcher and Melissa Shu. Um, and uh, what are we talking about, guys? You asked us to consider whether or not we would change if we could take ourselves out of being. I think the words you used were compulsively autocratic, and I'd yeah. like to know what you mean by that. Um, well, I mean, like, supposing I'm the kind of person who like. Let's say I'm compulsively competitive. And I, I have I, I'm working on it. I'm, that's not entirely true of me, but sometimes in my bad moments it's true of me. That if somebody beats me at some sort of um, competition that I care about, I can't help wanting to do that thing and do better, even if I think it's objectively not the best use of my time. I'm just like, how dare they? I want to have the last word on a Twitter argument. Yeah. Oh, oh, I did that on Twitter. I did that on Twitter. I've done it. I had a bad relationship with Twitter for a while. Uh, Twitter's designed for that. It's made. Yes, I know. And and, and I was a, I was a, I was the 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 chump, the chump, the chump um, (laughs) that that fell into their net. Um, And and um, and actually, I was having an argument with somebody. And I and I had surgery. Don't audience, don't worry. It was not anything life threatening, but I did have some surgery. And when I came back, the first thing that I thought was I wanted to see what he said so I could respond. Um, <laughs> and my wife said to me, um, "I don't want to hear that stupid thing." So I, I liked it so much that I made a a board 
like like a motivational poster that said i don't want to hear that stupid thing and i printed it out and i put it up in my office i don't want to hear that stupid thing so my question is you know they they have reported this about um ozempic that ozempic which is a diabetes drug that makes people eat compulsively less compulsive about eating it makes them think about food less also makes people less compulsive about other behaviors like compulsive gambling so I'm saying if I went to my doctor and I'm like, I I'm getting involved in these Twitter wars all the time. And he said, well, in fact, there's a pill. If you take it once a day, you'll be able to um, look at uh, uh, some sort of a status game that you're losing and be like, that's not terribly important. And you'll be able to focus on more important things. Would we want to take such a pill? Does it also make you less compulsive about getting up in the morning and going to work? No, it just makes you compulsive about status games, less losing compulsive. at status games. Oh, yeah, really. Maybe going to work is a status game. I don't know. I'm sorry. Well, just being that's a true. Maker, but let's, let's accept ways. the premise. Let's accept the premise. Mm -hmm. There's this drug. Yeah. No, you don't administer, take whatever the drug is. My you point. wouldn't. Nope. I think I'm voting that way, too. I'm trying to think of why, but that's my gut feeling, too. Though there are drugs. How is it different from are, eyeglasses, which I'm wearing yeah. right now? Or antidepressants, um, which are some. You know, I, oh, you're that's wearing where I was going. Yeah. Like, three of us we are already eyeglasses. take some drugs that give us certain fewer. They're, they're, right. If you take a drug that makes you less depressed, why not take a drug that makes you less jealous? No, it's not. It's not an anti-aid, anti-drug statement. I think, though, that you have to take a long view here. And I'm thinking okay. about, for example, what it is to raise children and we're not talking mm -hmm. about the hundred and the billionaire situation but just kind of everyday children and how it is that we try to talk with them in their classrooms and at home and kind of in our communities about making good decisions and getting buy-in for reasons i think that the no vote for me is because we want things that have lasting staying power we want to build communities and not just target or solve problems and we also need to be able to fail and mess up sometimes. This is yeah. really important. And so those are my three mm -hmm. initial responses to why I would vote thumbs down on that. <laughs> on the anti-status drug. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, yeah. part of this e is an empirical. <laughs> part of this is an empirical question about what are the effects of this drug after all. And these are serious questions to have about any drug you're taking. So even well, if it gives you really horrible diarrhea, no. <laughs> but right? well, well so consider antidepressants, right? Which yeah. many people take in order to function and, and remain alive. And they can do things like decrease libido. Or, yeah. or sexual drive, right? That the, a lot of people would say like being a sexual creature is part of being human. So I think we already make certain kinds of decisions like this. And why, it is an important question. Why do they decrease people's sexual drive? Does anyone have a good explanation? I, I, I don't, don't understand know. enough about it, but. I don't either, and but I, I, all I know is that when I read about these things, what they often say is they don't even really know how they're working. In other words, they have beneficial effects that you can report the, how people feel, but they don't. We don't have enough understanding of the brain to know exactly what they're doing. They so say it's, it's not, like we so don't. That, e it's like fixing a car by throwing a wrench at the engine. I we mean, don't even right, know right, right. why they work the way they do. I yeah. mean, we know right, that they I mean. work, but we yeah. don't know why they work. Right. And I was kind um, of joking about like, does the um, does the drug that. Uh, reduces compulsive arguing on Twitter also affect whether you get up and go to work in the morning. I was kind of making a joke, but I meant it seriously too, which is to say that 
you want to curb some behaviors and not others. And now which ones? I mean, which ones are the ones you're willing to sort of include in the net of things you're controlling with this drug? Um, when it comes to the the antidepressant thing, it might be a real trade-off. If you're seriously depressed, what I've heard people say about the loss of libido is you won't care because you'll feel so much better. <laughs> but if it's not, if it's a mild depression and this is a payoff, maybe you just feel more energized when you're not on the drug. And uh, there's real value choices about given that these drugs like always have more uh, side effects or unintended effects or kind of amorphous effects than what you'd like if it's a perfectly surgical effect, then uh, they're really valuative questions about what we're trying to control and whether we should want to. So the reason I'm kind well, of like a gut level no will, is will that, make a, yep. a, a hole in my nose sometimes. A uh, hole? Like not a deep hole, like a depression in my nose. <laughs> and, and sometimes they'll hurt behind my ears. Well, you and need, I'm okay with that. You need better like, glasses. Yeah. But you've made that decision, right? That evaluation. Right. So, so I'm saying the, the unintended consequences argument seems to be true of like everything we do. I mean, it's true of living in New York City. Yeah. Sure, of course. Like, yeah. You know, so well, I don't know why that is oh. particularly worrisome about chemical augmentation oh. of the brain. I think it is like all those things, except that we know so little about the effects of these chemicals that they tend to have unpredictable and un unruly consequences, uh, I think. But um, but that's true about immigrating. Like, if you immigrate to a new true. country, we know so little about what it's going to be like, you uh, well, know, well, that's absolutely if I move right. to Portugal. Well, that's absolutely right. I mean, suppose okay. you said, look, I've got this plane ticket. I'm going to send you to a country where you don't have to worry about the garbage being picked up in the morning. And I say, do I say, sign me up? I mean, I haven't heard all the rest of the story about what the effects I, are going to be on my life. Even effects aside... Are we going to categorically say, for example, that being compulsive in this way is only simply and ever a bad thing to be rooted right. out? Exactly. I'm thinking about great art, great artists, mm -hmm. thinking about mm -hmm. musicians. And I'm thinking about how we've been quick to judge here that being compulsive because we're in kind of Twitter fight world is always a bad thing. But it can also be, you know, enormously yep. productive and helpful for a person, for a society, for their family, and so on. And there, there probably is some kind of link between that compulsion and genius in some ways, and creative problem solving and art. Um, you know, I imagine that Picasso was not who he was because he was moderate in all things. No, he was really compulsive. He got up in the morning and painted all day and then went to sleep and then got up and kept painting. I was going to say Socrates was the original troll, right? I mean, he was a compulsive. You were asking about what Twitter would be in ancient Sumeria, but I think we kind of know what it would be in ancient Athens. It would be some of the early Socratic dialogues. Um, there was lots of compulsiveness and competition yeah. and wanting to yeah. get the last word. And Absolutely. Galileo was like that too, by the way. He was like a bull in a china shop. He was constantly getting into controversies about he would he would get into controversies about what Dante's hell looked like, and people were making maps and arguing about what it looked like, and and about music. And he was he was yeah. So that's exactly right. What kinds of what kinds of the, these traits are we going to pathologize or decide need to be controlled uh because after all some of those very same tendencies or impulses or character qualities right in different contexts can actually be really productive and, and also if you if you bring population genetics into it it becomes really tricky because you say if you've got two genes for sickle cell you're very ill 
But if you've got one gene for sickle cell, it protects against malaria. Ah. So you don't want to eliminate the sickle cell gene a good example. because then you mm -hmm. won't have the, the heterozygote mm -hmm. zygous mm -hmm. positive effect. And I bet that's got to be true of some uh, mental disorders. It's a very delicate balance. If you've got yeah. one gene for bipolar disorder, you're a, an artist. And if you've got two copies of it, uh, you end up killing yourself. But if we were to zots that gene, we would lose a lot of the right. heterozygous effects. And of course, in everything, to talk about two genes is wrong. There's yeah. like 200 genes yeah. with very yeah. complicated yeah. Uh, interrelations. That's yeah. true. Um, although it does make you wonder, like, if we heard that in China, they were um, using some kind of genetic uh, intervention on their children to make them smarter better faster it it'd be a worrisome it'd be a worrisome conversation yes right because absolutely. that would mean our grandchildren will be competing against their grandchildren and and if their grandchildren are you know much smarter better and faster than than our grandchildren our grandchildren will lose any kind of global conflict that's happening mm. I, don't, I don't know what to do about that one <laughs> oh I yeah but the, our great -grandchildren... I hope the Biden administration has some good people on that one. <laughs> our our great grandchildren will be happier though <laughs> well not if they're not if they're enslaved <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a beautiful thing that people are kind of these stable systems over long periods of time i'm going to kind of make a I go back to my kind of it's nice yeah. that people can change for the better, but it's also nice that they have a kind of, they're like gyroscopes. I have two kids, and seeing kids grow up, as maybe some of us know, uh, really from the beginning, you become much more of a determinist, I think, when you're a parent. I mean, from the beginning, it's their character. It's the same person when they're two and when they're four and when they're six and they're 10 mm -hmm. and they're 13. And it's like you don't think you can shape them really by the environment. I mean, um, they're on their own kind of path early on because of their character and that's a beautiful thing about human beings it probably explains a lot of our survival is that sort of resilience so that we're not just utterly malleable and changeable we'd probably have disappeared millions of years ago if we were very much mm. like that and that's what it's that's what's beautiful about knowing a person is you know that about them that the thing that's always kind of there melissa i think was just saying something like this to me a week ago right that that children are so interesting because if you are close to them as a parent or a family member or, you know, family friend that you see this kind of stead steadiness or steadfastness yeah. in yeah. certain character traits. And yet as a parent, our job yeah. is to shape them into certain kinds of creatures, right? We want yeah. them to be moral and everything. But I think Melissa, did you, would you add to that? I'm just thinking about a conversation. So my kids are, are young. They're seven and eight. They're 16 months apart. And I'm so glad they're so different. But one of yeah. them has certainly challenged how I view change and sameness and all of that because he is a hyper-competitive, really skilled athlete. He ah. was born, first word ball, was obsessed with circles before he could do anything. <laughs> and it's just like this. He is just like a force of nature. But the other one, I'm talking to him this morning, my seven-year-old, and he says, I said, do you think people can change? You know, I'm thinking about this. And he said, and this is the seven-year-old kind of ethical world. He said, sure, you can go from being a bad or mean person to being a good person. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, is that true? And he said, well, he said, maybe there aren't so many bad or mean people, but there are good people who do bad or mean things sometimes. 
Uh -huh. But deep down, maybe they're okay people. And I thought, uh -huh. you know what? Yeah, That's okay, really I can kind of more or less buy into that system. You know, we talk yeah. about a lot of times with with younger people, um, and this is a big conflict in my house all the time. If someone tells a fib or a lie, is that person therefore a liar? Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, right? That's a that's a standard kind of move in my in my house is mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. lie right. therefore liar. But then getting back to this identity piece, I'm also thinking of, you know, the ship of Theseus. And mm -hmm. so that's that classic trope. And actually, it starts one of the chapters in uh, Philosophy for Girls on identity. And the oh. idea with the ship of Theseus is that as different planks of a ship and different pieces of a ship are replaced over time, is the ship that comes to be essentially an entirely new ship, the same ship that it once was. And so maybe if I can kind of think about what we've been talking about for the last few minutes, what we're thinking about is the continuity or history over time, as um, Kim, kind of what you're saying, that over time factor of some kind of consistency. Maybe we're not at a point of there is definitely some kind of kernel of essence, but it's that kind of change over time with the emphasis being on time, too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's especially a tricky problem if you imagine somebody taking all the old parts and then reassembling them as the new book gets Well, built. that's the story <laughs> of the Tin Woodman of Oz. Are, are you all familiar ah. with the book, The Tin Woodman of Oz? No. no. Okay, so the Tin Woodman, the way he became a Tin Woodman, uh, so first of all, posit this, in Oz, nobody dies. Everyone, everyone is immortal. Um, and uh, the Tin Woodman fell in love with a woman named Nimi Amy. And Nimi Amy uh, was the ward of a witch named Mombi. So she didn't like the fact that the Tin Woodman was courting Nimi Amy, even though they were in love. So she bewitched his axe. So he chopped off his, um, his arm. And then um, he had a tinsmith make a new arm out of uh, tin. Uh, and then he chopped oh. off his leg. And she had a, a new a new leg made of tin and then his other leg and then his body was cut into in his head. And then ultimately he was entirely made of tin. And then he could not court Nimi Amy anymore because he had no heart. And that's why he had no he when we meet him, he's interested in getting a heart. Oh, so okay. in, in, the, in the Tin Woodman of Oz, uh, Dorothy says to him, well, what about this Nimi Amy situation? You just left her hanging. Why don't you go back and uh, and court her? And along the way, he discovers that there was also a soldier. Uh, so his name is Nick Chopper. And there was a soldier named like, you know, Joe Fighter or something. And the same thing happened to him. And all his pieces were cut and he was turned into a tin soldier. And then they, they, he, Tin Woodman opens up a cabinet and has a conversation with his original head. <laughs> and then they also meet this guy named Chop Fight, who has been put together from pieces of the tin woodman and the tin soldier and is a third guy now i don't remember how the romance turned out whether nimi amy picked any of these three characters i think she <laughs> didn't if i recall but they were okay with it somehow <laughs> but but yeah it is it is a strange thing if you posit one of these weird Derek parfit worlds where they're taking pieces of you or l frank baum world and then you're running into someone who's just like you but it is isn't you i don't know yeah that's if, if so I don't have a lot to say about that exactly because I haven't who, who does? <laughs> that just pushed a lot. Although you did just remind me of a terrifying childhood memory of I think it was Return to Oz the movie 
with different uh -huh. heads being pulled. Do you remember mm -hmm. this off the show? Oh yeah, there was a character named Languadier um, who has um, like like the way you might have a, uh, you possibly don't, but you might have a, a dressing room with a hundred hats that you put on. She has a hundred heads that she can put on. Um, she just yep. decides which head she wants to wear every morning. Yes, that was a weird idea. That, that is, from, is uh, interesting. Um, it's terrifying. Um, Very disturbing. Up there with the Twilight yeah. Zone. But the other thing I, I wanted to kind of add, maybe taking this idea, I always love thinking about what these characters might be like for, as children. You know, mm -hmm. we think about mm -hmm. like especially evil, bad, malicious, or just vacuous people and, and think about what that mm -hmm. person was like when they're eight. Be like, did they have that idea that they wanted to grow up and be that kind of person? They but, torturing squirrels, yeah. Right, yeah. exactly. I want to be on them. Like, yeah. how, do, how do you arrive there? Or even an office space and just being the paper pusher. But Kim and I both love Simone de Beauvoir. And I just wanted to share a little bit. We both love the ethics of ambiguity. And mm -hmm. thinking about that, what it's like to either change or not over time. Um, just a couple lines, maybe. Hmm. She writes, and this is from chapter two, the child does not contain the person he will become. Yet it is always on the basis of what he has been that a person decides upon what he wants to be. He draws the motivations of his moral attitude from within the character that he has given himself and from within the universe, which is its core relative. And I think that that's a nice way to, at least for me, sum up some of this. You know, it's not mm -hmm. that it's a matter of an essence unfolding yeah. some kind of direct line, like an acorn right. becoming an oak tree, but it's always on the basis of what has happened before. Yeah. that that we can figure out that decision process and that change process and look back. And I think that that's also where narrative becomes important because yeah. you don't always know in the moment when you're looking down the barrel, when you're facing your yeah. future, you don't always know. Yeah. What, what do you think about the Amazing Grace story? You know that? What's that? That, that, uh, the, the hymn, Amazing Grace mm -hmm. to Save a Wretch Like Me, was written by someone who was in the slave yeah. trade, right? Mm. And and his soul was saved uh, by Christianity, and he wrote a hymn about how radically he changed. Did he um, become abolitionist or slave? Yeah, yeah. anti-slavery. Yeah. He did. Ah, yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. I didn't know this. I didn't hear. Well, um, that's you know, pretty good. We don't want to exclude that possibility, do we? No. No, but, you know, conversions are interesting because uh, St. Augustine's conversion is really dramatic, and you read the early chapters of the confession and you think, ah, uh, he seems like the same person <laughs> in a lot of ways Yeah. Um, in retrospect. But, you know, the, the, the lines you let, read from Simone de Beauvoir sound to me a lot like Merleau-Ponty says things that sound a lot like that in this essay on Cezanne, Cezanne's Doubt, where he makes the same kind of argument that it's not deterministic uh, from the beginning to the mm -hmm. end, but... Yeah, it's responsive to the situation you're thrown into in such a way that looking back, it can look deterministic in retrospect because mm -hmm. you can see how you went from the you know the cards you were handed to what you did with them and how you became who you were. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that's a retrospective. That's a thanks to the retrospective view right. of things. Once it's happened, it might tempt you into thinking it was locked in from the beginning, but... The fact of your freedom is that there's lots of different ways you can respond to your world and mm -hmm. to make mm -hmm. yourself the person you are. So, um, yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, Kim, Kim, do you have any advice for someone who wants to become radically, radically better? So there's a bit of a paradox here. 
and I'll go back to mm-hmm. Aristotle and then use a contemporary example, which is, uh, well, we could even go like Dunning-Kruger. It depends, you know, does the person understand completely how far from good they are, right? And And so there's a power in knowing what you don't know, right? I mean, it's me. It's me. I, and I don't think I understand completely. Okay. But mm-hmm. you understand that there is more to be learned and done and be, right? Much I mean, you're, more. You're, Much you're more. posing the question already, which is how do I become better? And that yeah, I is... view myself as sort of like a glass one-tenth full. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think... Um, you know, and the pro- I don't know who your people are. I don't know your communities, but you have to allow yourself to make new connections in order okay. to change okay. substantially, right? Okay. And sometimes we don't How get do to I control do that? that. We don't always get to control it. And I think this is one of the terrifying things. So I was just thinking of the novel Push. Um, and I don't remember who wrote that. Melissa, do you remember who wrote Push? Okay, so in Push, Precious is um, this young girl who's just horrifically abused, and she has no familial connections, and she becomes nearly invisible at school. So she has no educational connections. She's just invisible and abused. And it takes one teacher to see, literally, that this child is sitting in the back of the room urinating herself because no one sees her raise her hand to ask to go to the bathroom, Mm -hmm. right? And then she gets pulled into some alternative education and she gets pulled into some support groups and she begins to make friends for the first time in her life. And that, she didn't get to control that, right? And and the problem is, of course, we'll say that's a child, da-da-da-da-da, but sometimes we don't get to control that. And I think Aristotle's right about this too. We have to be taught what is moral right before we can Mm -hmm. practice it and before it can become habitual and that's the scary part to me is that we don't always get to choose that if you are born Mm -hmm. into a white supremacist family and you were raised in that way you were raised in hate you you know it it really isn't always up to you as to whether you get exposed to something better than that um and i Mm -hmm. think that's really terrifying to me is that we don't always get to control it ourselves but for someone who does want to change, open yourself to new connections. And will they will they accept me? Because I'm afraid that they'll look down on me and they won't want to hang out with me. You think I should just give it a shot? Have they listened to this podcast at all before deciding? <laughs> okay. I'll view it as kind of auditioning. Change yeah, of I mean- environment. Change of environment can have dramatic effects, and you'll probably all know this, too, that um, all the propaganda about crack addiction was really overblown because people can right. get off crack much more easily than it used to be one of these horror stories that once you're on, it's yeah. hopeless and so on. Um, but it's true, again, I hate to keep invoking mice, mice and rats and so on, but apparently there's... You know, they get the mice addicted to crack or whatever it is, and it looks hopeless. They're going to keep hitting the thing to get yep. the drug and so on and so on. But they put them in a new cage with new friends exactly. and different toys to play with, and mm-hmm. they're off it. And they're yep. like, they're off it just exactly. like that. So all these stories, these myths about the strict determinism of addiction, mm-hmm. I think, are right. often just wrong. Um, and I think, yeah. too, mm-hmm. to go back to a point that Kim loves to make and I think is right about the power of community and individuals outside a person. You know, maybe there's something you can do yourself, as Kim was saying, but I think it's also upon 
people who feel an obligation to um, be a decent person outside of that person. So I think about, for example, the very serious way that I feel responsible toward my students. Not all faculty Mm -hmm. members do, and not all people in philosophy do. We know that. But I feel that special relationship in a special way, and I feel like it's my job to do that job well. So even if students come into my class, as they do, and feel one-on-one, and they don't care, they're not interested, or blah, 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 I feel a special obligation, whether they want it or not. And then it's my job to see what I can try to make happen with their buy-in over time. Um, And that's Mm -hmm. the only way that I think, you know, courses in the humanities really work anymore anyhow, is if you do have people in those relative positions of power saying, I'm going to go for it and try to make something good here. Yeah. And who said there's a paraphrase, this is a paraphrase, um, and hoping someone can help me here, but uh, one particular feminist said something like, like you, you work to become successful in certain ways so that you can pull others up and push them above. Right. And I Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a paraphrase and there's loads of people that said similar things, but I think, um, that it's a gift to be around people who want to help others change. Right. Mm -hmm. Who recognize that there may be more to life or maybe this person wants to change or maybe they don't, you know, that there's something very um, humble about recognizing uh, the role that we have in each other's sorts of timelines and narratives. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, are we coming in for a landing? Yeah, I think so. Does anyone want to want to get some last licks in any final statements you want to (laughs) make? No. (laughs) Okay. People can change only up to a point, and it's probably a good thing. And maybe a little painful. Yeah. Painful. But it it helps if other people help us. Yeah, that's Um, right. If you hang out with people who believe in change and like to change, you'll be more likely to change. I think so. I think so. That's cool. Well, thanks so much, uh, Kim and Melissa. Thanks for joining our podcast. I, I found it very... Uh, very uh, soothing like 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 in, and inspiring both soothing and inspiring excellent I'm yeah less terrified. i feel yeah i was just gonna say perhaps i'm less terrified although there, there's that kernel Good. there it'll, it'll come I back don't think, don't worry. Yeah, yeah, yeah i don't think i don't think we get away from it entirely <laughs> that's why it's a weekly podcast it's like kind of seven day cycle they found <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah 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 okay thanks okay thanks so much well, well, thanks pleasure. so much thanks so much what a pleasure talking it was great to, you to meet both of you thank you okay let's keep in touch and now i'm gonna press end on the meeting bye-bye bye This podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhart. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.